And then yeah. you have repellers yeah. um, who you know. are coming from a helicopter, and you can have two or four or six is the most repellers I ever went out with. Um, and you fly to the fire, you pick a spot that, you know, is about the size of your body or maybe a little bit smaller uh, that you can potentially get through the trees and you heave out a 250 foot rope and slide down it super freaking fast and get to the ground and fight fire as a barrel chested sky God. That's right. Yep. You got to limit your exposure time as well. So you got to go as fast as humanly possible, you know, for safety, for safety. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. Sig is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, Sig Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, Sig Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military, the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. So where is Chelan? Chelan is a lake in northern Washington. It abuts the uh, Okanagan National Forest and the North Cascades National Park. North Cascades is rugged. It's gnarly. It has huge cedars, big cliffs, awesome rocks, crazy weather, fun lightning storms. Devil's Club for days. It's so fun. <laughs> that's some good stuff. Like, that's kind of like... Yeah. Nah, that's it, where we really like to it's go. It's just a thorny jungle. And mm-hmm. when it burns, it does so pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, were you repellent at the time? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, three years of that stuff and that was uh one of those years i can't really actually remember which one but yeah the the one time that all of our gear got burned up and um we got evac'd off a of ridge was up in that uh general area lake chelan uh somewhere mid mid lake not quite exactly to the national park yet i don't believe what is a repeller uh well james like you would know uh it's a <laughs> dope that has nothing better to do with their life than slide down a rope out of a helicopter and Lengths of 250 feet, I think, was the rope length. So, Right. So there are three different occupations, or I don't know if that's even the right word, but there's three different kinds of Type 1 firefighters um, within wildfire. So you have hot shots, you have smoke jumpers, and repellers. Hot shots, like a 20-man crew, they go out and dig line. They're hardcore all day, every day. Big yeah. fires. Yeah, work on big project fires, um, some really good Sawyers. They do big backburn op- operations. Mm-hmm. And then you have smoke jumpers, bunch of divas, right? 
Yeah. Very concerned about their hair. They get better snacks. Um, They're generally skinnier. Probably skinnier. Yeah. yeah. Probably uh, hairless. <laughs> <laughs> um, so smoke jumpers jump out of what kind of airplanes do they use? The Sherpa. The Sherpas. Yeah. So how many how many passengers can the Sherpa hold? I'm not sure, man. I'm yeah. not a smoke jumping slick skinned guy. Right, just, but you're yeah. you're you're an aviation guy, so okay. that's it. So you you cram a bunch of smoke jumpers into this airplane and they fly around and they find a fire that, you know, suits suits their fancies and they kick out some weights with streamers on them and Looks like toilet paper if you throw it out of a window. Yeah, it looks yeah. like they just heaved out some toilet paper. Mm-hmm. And then depending on how those things flutter on the way to the ground, like it's, um, you know, that, that like, um, gymnastic thing where they do, like, the ribbons. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what that looks like. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the the jump master spot or whatever we want to we call the head jumper, he, uh, he determines based on how those things flutter to the ground where to kick his dudes out. And they jump out, parachute down to the ground, um, and then work on the fire for a hot minute or two until it gets away from them. And then they call in uh, the hot shots to come. Or they just never get to the uh, fire because they're hung up in a tree (laughs) for like three hours. And they're hungry and and they're crying and they just want to come down, but they can't. And then you have repellers um, who are coming from a helicopter. And you can have... Two or four or six is the most repellers I ever went out with. Um, and you fly to the fire, you pick a spot that, you know, is about the size of your body or maybe a little bit smaller uh, that you can potentially get through the trees and you heave out a 250-foot rope and slide down it super freaking fast and get to the ground and fight fire as a barrel-chested sky god. That's right. Yep, you got to limit your exposure time as well. So you got to go as fast as humanly possible, you know, for safety. For safety, yeah. <laughs> you know? But it's a real thing. It and is. like as you're rappelling down this rope, if this helicopter has a problem, mm-hmm. then the spotter takes a knife off of their chest and cuts the rope wherever you are on it. Mm-hmm. It's a true thing. Yep. And the reason that they do that is because it is better for you to fall 249 feet than to get dragged by a rope as a helicopter crashes. Yeah, which would be bad for everybody involved, not just you. And it's always like, maybe not forefront in your mind, but it's definitely in your mind when you step out on the skid of the helicopter and you tilt back until you're completely upside down and then start sliding down this rope that, hey, this big complex machine could have a problem at any moment and I need to get to the ground right meow Mm -hmm. so that they don't cut the rope and I fall. Yeah, I'm glad that they went to the two-engine machines over the single-engine ones. I think they stopped doing A-stars and 407s and L3s or L4s. Yeah. Long-rangers. Long uh, 205s. Yeah. Uh, back back in, uh, I don't know, a few years ago. Anyways, but yeah, yeah using medium helicopters now, two engines, and seems to be a lot safer when you have two engines instead of just one, yeah. or at least it would seem. I think I only repelled out of a 212 a couple times, maybe at John Day, mm-hmm. and then the rest of the time was mostly out of 205s and then some out of some little helicopters. Like when I was in Sam and I had to repel out of a long ranger. And that was weird because 
instead of going over the top of the skid, you had to do like this weird yeah. pirouette thing between yeah. the skid Underneath and the, the belly. aircraft. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for CG. That was that was definitely comfortable. I'm too big of a guy to be pulling that stuff off. Yeah, it was I'm nutty. I can't believe you did it actually. Now that you think it. Yep. Um. So yeah, we, me and uh, me and Mr. Ben Winter here, we repelled together at uh, at the Fraser Repel Base. Yeah. Northeast Oregon. Yeah, that was good times. Do you remember? Uh, you said, uh, you remember my uh, physical training regimen, which in- involved something that was special every morning. What, what was that? <laughs> I actually don't remember that. <laughs> I thought I thought you remember some kind of special. Uh, oh, the acoustics. Tr- yeah, yeah. <laughs> special motivation in yeah. the morning. <laughs> no, the first time I met Ben, we were stretching out, getting ready for PT, and he's going to lead PT for the day. And he- uh, you were ni- what nineteen, right, or twenty? Uh, I think I was 19. Yeah. Yeah. I was a little baby. Mm-hmm. And uh, still are. It's okay, though. Ben, ben rolled up there and he goes, What's up? I'm Ben. And he lifts <laughs> his leg off the ground in a really dramatic way and just trumpets out a fart and uh, goes, You know, let's go. <laughs> and then ran us all into the dirt as, uh, as he should. But uh, okay. So you repel this fire, uh, Lake Chelan. You remember much about the fire? Uh, no, just a uh, small, smoky little tree struck by lightning. And then uh, I think uh, we had just gotten our gear out. And uh, typically after we they drop us off, they uh, circle over the fire, check us out, make sure that we're doing all right. And then, uh, you know, if we need any, uh, well, we get our radio set up and stuff like that and do a, a positive comms check with a uh, helicopter or with the uh, home base or on whatever repeater frequency we're using. And uh, so... I think we were kind of getting through that process, and um, during that time, the weather changed and uh, the winds picked up. So, um, in the current situation in the part of summer that we're in, um, you know, just the wind activated the fire, uh, much like blowing on it out in the out in the um, fire pit, and uh, so it ignited a bunch of uh, unburned uh, fuel, so trees and bushes and stuff like that, and started to tear us up the mountain. And um, they usually drop us off about a ridge line away, um, so just for this exact reason. And so we're about one ridge away, so there's a, usually a valley that separates us and um, and the fire, um, or and or a large unburned, or sorry, burned over or rock scree or some kind of a protective uh, area between us and the fire. So uh, in retrospect, I mean, really, it wasn't that terrifying of an experience, but. We ended up uh, packing over to an adjacent uh, ridge uh, where we got extracted off of um, that particular um, piece of land and uh, watched all of our gear get burned up in the process and had a nice little show of fire and smoke and whatnot and another free bonus ride and air tour over Lake Chelan, Washington in the North Cascades National Park. So it worked out okay. Yeah. (laughs) It's, It's amazing how fast... A fire situation can change yeah. like it can go from on the right day early august um it can go from a single tree that's smoking to something that will just jump up and and kill you in a bad way mm-hmm. in in such a short amount of time that it's almost hard to comprehend but it's really cool though i mean i really enjoyed that and um i still you know like i compare every job that i do to kind of doing that yeah like basically being in uh, small and remote areas um, with, uh, you know, two to four man teams and 
doing the job that you're supposed to do, you know, and taking care of the person that's next to you. And so, like, you know, I've always approached, like, I guess every situation in life since then with that same kind of mentality, you know what I mean? Like, the, whatever it is that I'm doing, wherever I'm doing it is, uh, the other person is depending on me uh, just as much as I'm depending on them to be able to get me into or out of a particular situation that may or may not be, like, amazing, so. And, you know, we joke about it, but the reality is it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to repel into a wilderness area in a place that you can't get any other asset into. You can't drive into it. You can't smoke jump into it. You can't do anything. You can't even get a helicopter into it because you, you, the reason why you're letting down out of the rope is because you can't land a helicopter there. So there's usually like lots of 150, 200 foot tall trees, like big, huge cedars in North Cascades, for example, you know, um, but uh, yeah, you just don't have a whole lot of options. So if you're blowing knees or elbows or you're, you know, cut your finger off with chainsaw or something like that, I mean, you got you and the dude next to you and that's it. Like there's no other people there. There's no, uh, you know, there's no lifeguard or safety coach or OSHA or nothing. Like it's just you and another dude. And, and that's the way I've operated my whole life since then. You know the, what I mean? And the tools you have, you have a Pulaski, right? So that's an, an axe on one end and a hoe on the other. You've got a shovel with an obnoxiously short handle. Mm-hmm. You have a Fuck. gallon of water a day. You have three gallons yeah. of water per person. So most people that fight fire tend to use water. We don't have that option. Nope. You get a gallon a day and then you've got food for 36 hours. Yeah, something like that. And we've never wrapped up a fire in 36 hours. So nope. you're definitely on a big food budget. In fact, we would have to watch a fire after we thought, like, this thing is completely done. We had to watch it for eight hours during the heat of the day to make sure that not The next day. The next day. So, if you saw any kind of smoke whatsoever during the burn period after you went ahead and engaged your small fire and watched it through that burn period and saw any smoke whatsoever pop up, like, even a smoking little ember, it's like you reset for the next day. So, yeah, no, we, we, I mean, I don't know about you, but I used to keep like at least a day and a half of food in that little belly, in that, in our little belly bags that yeah. we, t- our line gear that we had on us on a daily basis. And so, yeah, between, yeah. And it, it really, surprisingly, you can pack a lot of calories into a, a small package, you know, if you use a bunch of, you know, calorie dense, uh, stuff. Um, so it wasn't, I don't think food, I don't think we ever really ran out of food without having like a serious issue. Did you guys ever run out of food? We did. We ran out of, out of food and water really bad on a fire with uh, with Norm and Jess and a couple other dudes, and it was up in the Wanaha wilderness. And the fire ended up being a quarter of an acre or something like that, and and we really hit it hard and just you know rototilled the entire section. You know, it was. 18 inches deep everywhere that we dug. Like we mm-hmm. dug up the entire fire. There's no burning roots. There's nothing. And sat on it, did our watch. And there were some smoke jumpers across the Canyon from us. And we knew there was no way on earth that a smoke jumper was going to hike out of a fire. We knew they were going to call in for a helicopter waited. Sure enough. They like, Hey, we're going to need a ride out of here. It was like, Oh, cool. Hey, while you're here, me and my boys could use a lift too. It's like, jackpot we nailed it and we brought in some extra stuff like i think we had a blivet and you know 300 feet of hose a blivet is like this pyramid shaped thing that can hold water mm-hmm. and so we had some extra weight you already have a lot of weight so your typical loadout on a fire on a rappel fire is going to be between 110 and 130 pounds 
and you know remember that you're not in a place as a trail like it's difficult to get out of there so we brought in even extra stuff because we're counting we called them knee testers and hopefully you don't get rocked down on your way down (laughs) no kidding so hopefully you know everything goes well and whatever but in this case the the helicopter got diverted for another fire and we didn't get the chance to uh to ride out but now we're out of food and we're out of water um so we had to had to hike out of the wanaha and it was a steep brushy bastard and it i think it was like four and a half miles to get out and it took us about 12 hours and everybody was in pretty bad shape by the time we got out there's a couple cool things that happened though there's some there's like an old couple that were volunteering as as a fire lookout and they were listening to us die on the radio on our way out Mm. and this gal baked some little um pies for everybody excellent um so we had little pies waiting for us at the trailhead and and water and gatorade which was you know a a legitimate lifesaver but I weighed my pack when I got out, and it was 152 pounds. Um, that's a lot of weight to carry uh, in, a, in a bad place for that long. But, yeah, that was definitely a case where we ran out of everything. But we made it, and it was, it's a tough thing. And I've talked about it before, but the more often you do difficult things, the better you are at facing the next difficult thing. Another time with Corey Otten. Do you remember Corey? Did you fight fire with him? Um I remember a Corey, but I don't remember that particular last name. No. Yeah. Um, we were on a, a fire in the Umatilla and as soon as we landed, it's like, this is hopeless. You know, it jumped from one acre to 10 acres to 30 acres. And like, there wasn't even a place where we could, you know, start managing, you know, water drops or, or seat drops or, you know, retardant, anything like that. So we just grabbed our stuff and started going but because we hadn't got to empty anything out of our containers, we still had those complete full loadouts of the boxes and it was super heavy. And when we were, I don't know, a mile away from being able to get to a road, Corey's pack actually split his sternum so he couldn't carry his pack anymore. Mm. And it was like, okay, do we leave this pack here and let it get burned up? Like, no, no, I got it. So I just strapped his pack onto my pack. Of course you did. Yeah, and carried it out. And I, I don't think I've ever quite been the same since then. <laughs> but uh, James got his sternum stretched. Yeah, got everything stretched and compressed. <laughs> Came out of there a whopping five foot four. <laughs> uh, you look like one of those comedians of a Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Are they short? <laughs> I mean, they're compressed. I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of hard to tell on TV sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> so while you were fighting fire, you were also going to college in North Dakota. Yeah. The last year, I decided that... Uh, so I was looking at all these like super awesome mustache-wearing helicopter pilots, and I was like, well, you know what? You know, beating the dirt and like testing my knees out on these remote wilderness areas is a really great plan and everything, but um, I think they get paid a little bit better. And... Uh, it seems like I have a lot of fun in the sky flying around. So I thought that that would be a more fun thing to do long term would be to fly helicopters rather than to slide down ropes out of them. Right. So I went in that trajectory. And um, as a very proud high school dropout, I uh, decided to start very 
<laughs> minimally back in school. So I went to a community college for a couple of years. And um, surprisingly, um, going to college is a lot easier than um, hiking up and down uh, like Hell's Canyon, for example. Yeah. Um, with lots of weight on your back and stuff. So it takes a lot less time and effort. And so I did okay and got scholarships to go to University of North Dakota, where um, I ended up doing a aviation major. And uh, part of the deal to go to that program was um, I had to get my uh, fixed wing airplane license on my own out of pocket. Um, and then, you know, of course, all of my school stuff up to that point was out of pocket as well. So, uh, but yeah, so I ended up uh, getting uh, one of uh, 15 of those scholarships and then ended up... Uh, Flying helicopters uh, through college, got my commercial ratings and stuff like that. And then uh, part of the deal with the scholarship was to go on and go fly for the Army. So it was a, a contract, basically, hey, if you don't screw this up, uh, we'll, we'll uh, pay for your school and your flight training. And then uh, we'll guarantee you an aviation branch in uh, the Army. And I was like, sweet, because I didn't really want to go in the Army unless I was going to be flying. And that's really all I wanted to do in the Army. And I just somehow managed to very luckily find a way to go only that route and that's it and it's um anyway so that's that was that story and so then, were you a warrant officer nope no i was a real live uh, commissioned officer which definitely has its uh pros and cons in the uh in the army so uh i probably would have flown a lot more um being a warrant officer um over the long term um, but however, that when, when I got got done and out of college, the uh, I went through the flight school program down there at Rucker, and then um, I think within the first three weeks out of uh, flight school, three weeks out of flight school, I was in um, Afghanistan for the first time in uh, 2010. No, no, late 2011. Sorry. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of interesting, you know. You just get your check right out of flight school in Blackhawks, and then you're like in. Uh, foreign country a few weeks later tying in with a unit that's already deployed overseas um in small little fob in eastern afghanistan so yeah. what's a fob oh yeah that would be a forward operating base um so and depending on who you ask it was a large one because it had aircraft at it so yeah. uh we had amenities such as a hot food cooking kitchen which is wow not, yeah i know not everybody gets that gucci gucci i know i know yeah it, it got blown up, though, that year later on. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was short-lived. Um, so that was really interesting. They made some really good uh, Al-Qaeda and Taliban recruitment videos out of that. It was pretty sweet. Al Jazeera has a special on it. It's a Fab Salerno 2011 attack. Sorry, 2012 attack, June 1st. Anyways. In the last decade, how much time have you spent in Afghanistan, Iraq, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's approaching uh, six years now. So 11 trips, 11 trips, totally in six years in the last yep. 10 years. Yeah. So most of 2012, 2014, 2016, we're all Afghanistan and then Iraq's been on and off for the last, since, uh, early 2018. So did you fly much operationally as a Black Hawk pilot? Yeah, I did. A, a ton, actually. Um, yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, flew six days a week. Um, was just uh, integrated right in uh, uh, as part of the team uh, when the 82nd Airborne uh, as part of uh, Alpha Company, second of the 82nd, the uh, Red Hawks. And then we were attached to a 
uh, a task force called uh, Task Force Wolfpack, which, I mean, obviously, like, what other task force would you ever want to be attached to? So that was actually kind of cool. And so one of my, my best friends from high school was a Apache guy, so me and him got to do a bunch of ops where, you know, he'd come in and basically, you know, lay down, uh, uh, you know, supporting fire, at least uh, be ready with the trigger on the 30 mic mic, you know, if uh, we needed any kind of assistance and watching over us and stuff like that. So that was always a good feeling because, you know, it's cool. It's cool to know the people that are like flying next to you to be able to complete stuff like that. But um, yeah, I think we did just about everything. I was really satisfied with this uh, this year. It's eleven and a half months flying there, and I flew. Uh, it was close to a thousand hours. It was like nine hundred and something or whatever, like more or less. By the time we got done with it, and I wasn't the high time guy, which um, I think I think there's guys that flew like twelve, thirteen hundred hours that year. Like we, or the whole brigade, the whole brigade. So all of the entire eighty second airborne. Uh, combat aviation brigade like up up to that point flew 175,000 hours that that year so it was like one of the highest tempo uh, years for aviation support that they had in Afghanistan for uh, I mean actually I think maybe ever like I think just do the ebb and flow of uh, the troop support over there and stuff so a thousand hours yeah how many missions is that um so you know we it's hard to say because, uh, you know, you'd have your, a, a scripted mission for the day, which is kind of like the general multi-use mission, uh, for the Blackhawks. So you'd be able to transport people from here to there or get them from, uh, Salerno back to, uh, Bagram or from Salerno to Kabul or just one of the other, like, hundreds of, like, small little combat outposts, um, splattered all over the place in, uh, Regional Command East. So that was kind of like our little area of operations from Salerno, which is kind of in the eastern central afghanistan mountains um up to jalalabad which is like kind of uh, a little bit more northeast up to um it's it's kind of like the all right just the eastern half of afghanistan we'll just call it that and make it easier for everybody because it's kind of geographically difficult to keep track of that but yeah so in addition to that so we'd be interrupted a couple times a day to go run like a hasty um air assault mission for rangers or one of the um, operational detachment alpha teams, which is like an ODA team or, um, a team. And that's a special forces team. We, uh, ran people, uh, back and forth to another little fob called, well, it's still there and I can't say the name of it. Right. It's right, right down the street from us. <laughs> yep. And, um, but anyway, so, and did a bunch of work with those dudes and took a look in some interesting places and poked our nose in some weird little caves and did vehicle interdictions and did, uh, long line work with water drops. We did what are called speed bag or speed ball resupplies, which are body bags full of ammo and food. So kind of like when you, we were doing our firefighting days and we'd get like resupplied every once in a while with like food if we were out there for a few days. Right. Um, so these guys are also out there on their like, like crazy, you know, missions for several days at a time or whatever. Like we didn't really know who the customer were, was sometimes, you know, it's just like, you know, we have several of these like speed bags full of guns ammo food whatever maybe money who knows and uh we would you know literally take them over this um like ridge lines or whatever where there'd be a couple dudes like sitting there with a uh, a chem light uh you know windmilling that thing so spinning it around on a circle on a string you know letting us know where they're at and you can pick up those ir chem lights on a on a, on a windmill or a chainsaw from like you know miles away so it's kind of yeah. cool to you know because you'd be flying out there with your goggles and stuff and then just go pick them out and just drop off their stuff to them, they'd be good for another few days. So it's good to be able to support those guys like that. It's pretty fulfilling. What uh, elevations, altitudes were you flying at? Uh, you know, so, well, I think the um, 
mountains headed over to, towards uh, Jalalabad are, you know, 13, 14,000 feet or so. Um, nothing too too crazy. Like the real steep uh, Hindu Kush are up in that northern part of Afghanistan. Um, so but we didn't really get that that far up into into that um, into that area where it gets into that 17, 18 plus thousand feet category. But so. flying above something that's already 14,000 feet tall, mm-hmm. like you need oxygen, right? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, we'd kind of like fly in between on the ridge, uh, like in between right. in the canyons and stuff. And th- there was areas where you can get in where it was like sub 12, you know, which is basically the cutoff. So below 12,000, you don't need it. So, but yeah, we'd, I mean, there's, there's plenty of times where we put in like, you know, ODA sniper teams, like on ridge tops, like on some, uh, obscure, like nine or 10,000 foot peak and like there, you just have one wheel, like on the, on the side of like some rock face, you know, and like these dudes would just be like hopping out of the helicopter, you know, and, uh, you know, banging their, banging their rifles on the roof of the, and, and stuff on the way out and like hoping that they don't fall off a cliff, like 3000 feet. <laughs> so, cause it's gnarly, but they're, <laughs> but they're overwatching a valley and stuff. So for an ongoing operation or whatever, so there's, they're just they set themselves up there and they could, you know, they're probably, you know, they got a, a, a thousand meters or a couple thousand meter shot, you know, on a, whatever it is that they're overwatching like a, a ground operation. So like, when they clear out valleys of certain like insurgents or whatever, like there'll be a main effort that's moving one direction and then there'll be a support by fire position like or multiple support by fire positions that are going to be in, on an adjacent ridge. And so basically the, the main effort uh, movement will push through and clear out every single house and it's uh, lined out essentially on a, it's called a, um, on a grid system essentially that's numbered. Right. And so they can check that off, um, you know, one by one as they go through each one of these houses to uh, clear them out. And then uh, basically, so we just supplied them with a ride to go get there and do their thing. But it depends on the size of the operation. So this, that can be scaled for a whole entire valley or it can be like a particular specific compound for a high value target or whatever. So it just depends. How difficult is it to come in at high altitude, put one wheel into a hillside, not hit that hillside with your rotor blades at night with night vision, which is like freaking looking through a soda straw. Yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. It's not easy at all. So it's a, it's a team effort, you know, like, um, so you got, you know, yourself, uh, you know, flying, so you got a pilot flying and then you got a pilot not flying. So, you know, the communication work and stuff like that. And we've got a little floor mic switch where you step on it. Um, so you don't have to touch the controls. Um, so especially when you're doing something real delicate like that. And then, um, so the pilot not flying would be doing all the comm stuff and nav stuff and timing. So like if you had a time on target, um, they would be like monitoring that and where you're at on the map. And uh, and then you have two crew chiefs that are out in the uh, left and right hand side of the uh, aircraft that are basically like clearing the nose, clearing the tail, uh, clearing down below, um, making sure you're in time and space, like you're not going to hit anything. And yeah, super valuable to have that whole, like, uh, you know, crew coordination element, um, not only, like, in everything from, like, uh, daily life, whether it's, like, running a company or whether it's, uh, you know, running out and running a snowmobile trip with your buddies or whatever, but being able to, like, communicate effectively and respect one another enough, you know, to be able to uh, coordinate and operate safely as a team is super important and, you know, kind of carrying over from Forest Service days, um, you know, but, yeah, that's essentially it, man. Like, I don't think that that's something that uh, can 
be done easily on your own. I've seen some little birds and stuff, um, you know, they'll, they'll do it, but those cockpits are bubble cockpits. You can see like your below your feet, like you can see every part of the aircraft yourself, you know what I mean? Essentially. Um, so, and I'm not taking anything away from those dudes, but I'm just saying that, um, you know, like it's, it's understandable that that's, um, you know, a lot more easy to throw skids on the side of a building somewhere and kick off a bunch of operators or rangers or whatever off the skid. I'm doing that job versus uh, with a little bird versus like with a big ass black hawk where you're kind of completely enclosed inside this gigantic cockpit and uh, operating a 18 to 20,000 pound aircraft when it's all loaded down with mission equipment and dudes and all their crap. So getting shot at in a tank is scary at, at worst and obnoxious at best getting shot at in a helicopter that's flying what's that like um kind of fun <laughs> <laughs> so, because you've got a you've got an attack helicopter nearby that can come help you out no no yeah so you know how like that we had unforecast thunderstorms every so often too and um forest service and that was always fun to deal with so we also had unforecast thunderstorms in uh afghanistan which is wild because like you're like oh it's just afghanistan some hot ass desert or whatever at least that was my my uh my opinion but at the time back in the day and uh man yeah that weather will come out of nowhere and it is enormous thunderstorms and i remember getting shot at one time with um that we were coming back from i don't know some fob like north of where we were at i can't remember the name of all of them now but um and uh we got opened up on by a uh, 23 millimeter uh anti-aircraft gun the ZSU yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it was a ZPU or a ZSU. Yeah. I can't remember. One of them was like radar guided, and the other one's like just some like some jackass like sitting in a cart, like a, <laughs> in a wagon or some shit, or on a donkey. Great big bullet though. Yeah, big bullet, <laughs> big bullet. Uh, kind of. So, anyways, the um, yeah. So there's a difference between like getting shot at by like AK-47 rounds, which are kind of like they're kind of look like flaming tennis balls like going past the window, and yeah. then then those look like flaming basketballs going past the window. <laughs> You're like, oh man, that that would really suck. So, but. You know, you're kind of thankful that these dudes don't have a whole lot of technology because, you know, they're just kind of shooting at noise. So, they're, you know, well, just by kind of like the shot path or whatever. So you kind of just see this streaming pile of tracers like running across the horizon. And you're just like, you can, you know, you're like, well, that one was uh, that one was uncomfortably close. Um, you know, there's definitely plenty of dudes that got holes in the airplane. And I, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I, I never got one, man. I never I never got a hole in the airplane from a from a from a bullet. You know, like it was, it's really weird. Mm. So it's actually surprising because I know we got shot at all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of uh, airplanes, you built an airplane. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Tell me about that. Mm, it's a, yeah, it's a two place experimental airplane, tandem seating. I could barely fit you in the back of it uh, over a glorious ride over North Carolina. That wasn't a glorious day. ride. Yeah. What was that? That was like 2013 or something. But anyway, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it goes about uh, 200 miles an hour. It's really, really fun to fly. It's made out of fiberglass. Um, it was a side project while I was in college because flying helicopters and going to school and doing RTC wasn't enough. And uh, the, the way those wings are built is unique, right? What's that called? Um, it's just a foam and core, um, so a fo foam and fiberglass construction. I mean, like having a... a um, oh, a canard? Yeah. The, 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 the way that... Okay, so it's got a wing in the front called a canard. Right. Uh, so it has a, a front a front wing that controls the pitch of the airplane. And then um, 
the uh, the main wings uh, control the roll of the airplane, um, and have the um, the rudders built into the wing. Um, so, anyway, pretty cool. It's amazing. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's super pretty. It's a good example of the type. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, really cool plane. I also built a truck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me about your pickup. Uh, well, it's a 1957 Chevrolet pickup. And I bought it uh, used, obviously, in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? And uh, a few, five years ago or so, and uh, been kind of tinkering with it, and it uh, now has a um, 525 horsepower LS3 in it, and uh, it's sporty. <laughs> it's like Lamborghini sporty. Yeah. It's probably better than a lot of Lamborghini sporty. Yeah. Um, pretty incredible yeah it's kind of fun it doesn't impress the chicks though because it's not it doesn't carry the the bull badge and you know stuff like that it's kind of funny yeah so but that's okay that's all right yeah we don't need to impress them no so you spent just a, a boatload of time in the air operationally in afghanistan mm-hmm. um but then you got out and became a contractor yep what can you tell me about that? What kind of contracting are you doing? Uh, well, so right now I'm uh, working for a company that serves the Department of Defense. Mm-hmm. So more or less, uh, so we're still doing that. And I think we'll probably just like, there's a bald eagle over there. Yeah. That's kind of where we're at with that. Yeah. <laughs> so... Ben, yep. ben is, is still still very much in the fight. Um, yeah, it's fun. I still get to I still get to support and play and stuff like that with the dudes uh, over overseas, and um, it, it's good to still be a, a part of the process, you know. So that's kind of where I get my little reward out of it. And uh, basically, like I think, as long as I'm still healthy, I'll I'll still continue to do it. Um, but yeah, it's kind of it's it's a tough struggle between that and the. Uh, the the side hustle but there'll be a there'll be a point in time where it'll become pretty clear on when uh the time to leave leave that life behind is what's the side hustle uh so I, uh, a couple year and a half ago now i started a small company called uh, tier one kinetics and um so a lot of stuff that we've been a part of and supported and observed and planned for and all the other stuff both uh, tactically operationally and strategically has been a uh, has to do with these tier one elements, which are, you know, kind of like the type one firefighters. They're the, they're the tip of the spear. They're the hardest training dudes. They're the ones that are, they're the seals, the operators, the fucking, um, Delta guys and the people from other agencies that usually are former one of those three, um, or Rangers. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, that's kind of like, you know, where most of the money gets made these days. Um, and uh, between that and, and training uh, f- foreign armies and militaries, um, which all of those folks um, probably have something to do with in one way or another at one point or another. Um, but those are the tier one dudes. And then the kinetics part of it is, um, well, that's what you got to do uh, in order to uh, protect the lives of others, man, is you got to deliver kinetics. So whether it's in the form of a bullet um, or a missile or a rocket or a bomb all of those are transforming one type of energy uh, to another type of energy uh, via a kinetic event and so essentially uh, 
we're transforming like we're coming from that community and we're transforming energy into uh, you know, something else that's more productive and mainstream for everybody else, you know? So taking that experience that we've had over the years and like translating that into, into the stuff that we're, um, presenting to folks, uh, via, uh, firearms. Um, we have uh, company gear. Uh, we're doing a little bit of ammo. We're doing some custom modification on some stuff, uh, for, um, guns and equipment and um you know but i'm still learning everything man i'm not a i'm not an expert by any means on anything and uh you know i take i take classes i look for people to uh teach me stuff you've taught me a lot um you know there's people around here that teach me things like i i you know, learned a lot from jackie i've learned a lot from um bryce down at uh, long range shooters of utah and um there's just so much stuff that you just don't get sh- uh, taught in the uh, firearms industry you know that uh, in the military in general, I don't know if you've kind of noticed that as well. Like, I mean, it just, you kind of got to take it on yourself to like start to learn this stuff. And, uh, and then you start learning, like, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a tier one operator, never will be, uh, never have been, but, uh, you know, just kind of learning how to control yourself under these, uh, pressures and, uh, simulated stress events and stuff like that. And training with a lot of those dudes and, um, you know, over the last couple of years now to be able to, um, c- and compete with them, uh, in a productive way kind of like helps you know judge yourself on where you're at in your training and um, there's a lot of proficiency just like flying uh, so like you can get good at flying and then don't fly for a while and all of a sudden you're you suck at flying so it's not exactly like riding a bike um, so but the same is true for firearms um, uh, presentation and delivery so there's some proficiency involved there and so just learning like you know what's the frequency of training or whatever that you need to keep to be able to actually maintain proficiency and then uh, what type of training to be able to keep on training to, and then what standards to train to, to be able to keep yourself within a certain tolerance of like being a good competitor, I guess. Um, and also a, like a good asset. So going back to a good team guy, you know, like, you know, if you and me are out and doing something like I want to be somebody that's like pretty useful to be, have around, you know, not just like some guy that like pretends like, I don't know. I take some pictures of like doing some tactical stuff or like, wow, I do like some really fancy reloads off my couch. And like now all of a sudden, like I'm an operator or something like that. Like, I mean, I like to prove it to myself and then, you know what I mean? So tier one kinetics is, um, it's gear that's, that's sort of curated, um, for, um, for the tier one community. And then, you know, people that want to operate, at that level, you know, whether it's just for their own proficiency domestically or whatever. And then, um, also some training, some competitions. Um, but I mean, it's everything from guns to hats, to sunglasses, to training and yeah, and it's all, all good stuff. You bet. Yeah. And I'm just trying to, you know, deliver, deliver that quality. Um, uh, but also like on a, on a, on a tool level, um, you know, we're not, we're not quite going to deliver that. Uh, I just don't want to, put people like normal working like dudes like and 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 men and women and people that want to own this stuff like i don't want to put them in a in a bind financially to actually like step into something that's like you know really useful like has some cutting edge equipment like installed into the into the into the tool that they're going to be picking um and um just have it be reasonable um price wise and then uh also perform extremely well. So, uh, you know, I'm definitely like looking way outside myself. I'm definitely, like I said, not, not operator guy, but 
lucky for me, you know, I know enough people in the industry, um, you know, through a lot of people like yourself, um, that can do this testing for me and evaluate for me, um, and at least confirm or deny like my assumptions, uh, based on my experience. And so I do a lot of cross checking, like with other people to make sure that my stuff's like not, I'm not giving out like something that's going to screw up on somebody when they need it in a critical time. Cause essentially like, you know, I've, I don't come from some ignorant like spot where I don't think that, um, at some point, like you could find yourself in a situation where you might need to have a piece of equipment to defend your life or the people that you love around you. And, um, you know, I want to be able to supply that, that tool, uh, to the people and have them rely on that. And with that confidence that you need, what are some of the, tool. what are some of the brands you endorse? Oh man. Well, uh, for starters, got, um, got SIG, uh, for sure. Uh, you know, I've been a fan of them for a long time. Um, uh, Glocks get carried all over the place, all over the place out, out and overseas. Uh, Rome, I've been working with them for uh, two and a half years or something to get their gun like completely uh, flawless um, and error free. So that's been an amazing uh, project. And actually, that's kind of the reason why I even started the company in the first place is uh, just because I got sick of paying FFL transfer fees. And so it just worked out to be cheaper to just buy the ffl license itself i wasn't like i wasn't even trying to really enter into this whole realm of business whatsoever <laughs> uh, it just so happened that i just got sick of paying transfer fees for testing out this gun for rome um and it, like everybody agreed that it was a smarter solution to just uh, get the ffl done and so what is rome so rome is a small manufacturing facility uh startup as of a few years ago in grand forks north dakota and I went to SHOT Show with them. My first SHOT Show was uh, two years ago in 2019. And uh, so uh, I had been doing some testing for, uh, on their prototype rifles for uh, a couple years at that time. Well, maybe like a year. So I, I was one of the people that knew, knew it pretty well, knew that particular gun uh, pretty well, and I could speak to it. So I put on their, their polo and, and talked about it. And it was cool. Met up with you down there and stuff. So... Anyways, we uh, yeah did that for a few days, uh, took care of Rome. Um, the reason why I know those guys is I was an engineer for them up in North Dakota while I was in college. I was an intern, um, so I designed like small parts on CAD CAM and like figure out different machines and stuff. And long story short, I like asked them for a job like sweeping floors, and I asked them if they teach me something every once in a while. That'd be great. So my first job was, in guns, I got the same way. Yeah, I'm sweeping floors, sweeping up you know, all the machinery, um, all the metal shavings and stuff, which you get absolutely everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I did it for free. Yeah. That's exactly what my, my rate was. Cause I was already, yeah, I didn't, it didn't bother me one bit. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot, a lot cheaper to work for free than to pay for a college education that probably isn't worth what you pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. So, so it depends on what you want to do with your life. Yeah. There's definitely jobs that you need to go to college for. There's definitely a lot of people that go to college that didn't need to. Mm-hmm. That's the truth. But um, yeah, so yeah, but I've been working with Aero stuff. Aero Precision um, has uh, been a pretty good and reliable supplier of uh, stuff that's surprisingly good for what it costs. Um, so there's that. Um, but yeah, no, Rome's Rome's uh, come a long way, man. Uh, and they've you know finally got their stuff completely tight now. And as of uh, I think like. 
September, October of last year or so. They're, that's when their full production got launched and stuff, and they were able to like have a consistent output of their high quality stuff. So, and uh, their deal is a lightweight AR10. Yeah. So their whole deal is that it's the it's the magnesium frame AR10, and so it's a third lighter than aluminum. So just out of the box, like basically, um, it, it's a third lighter than uh, any comparable AR platform gun. And then uh, you go from there and all the internals are essentially similar or the same as most, um, you know, high-end manufacturers. So you're going to find the same uh, brands that are in the barrel and in the bull carrier group and in the, um, you know, handguard and the, and the buttstock and the buffer. Well, the buffer tubes get, get made uh, in-house too. So it's the buffer tube, the upper lower receiver, the handguard, and then um, the barrel nut is all made out of magnesium. And then they are starting to make their own uh, titanium muzzle brakes now. So wow. yeah, it's kind of cool. That, so with their, with their um, magnesium proof research barrel options, so they had a, um, the magnesium frame uh, along with a carbon fiber barrel, and then they had these uh, titanium um, muzzle brakes so it's one of the i think it's the only one in the world you know that actually has that those you can list those three materials off and uh that's what actually is made out of <laughs> so and they use those really awesome uh, atc uh, gold triggers too which um i've i've put on every single gun that i um have made now at the uh at uh at tier one so or yeah yeah just because they make a huge difference so and you also used to work for nosler yeah yeah, graveyard shift. What were you doing there? Suffering, um, <laughs> <laughs> paying for ski mo- ski money. I think paying for lift tickets, um, gas to get to the mountain. Were you but making yeah, ammo or what? I was. I was. I ran an annealing oven uh, for uh, the um, for the copper jackets. So they come in these little copper pellets, and so they uh, they run through these uh, hot hot ovens, and then I uh, they get hot weird right so they get hot and uh then they get get some sort of an acid bath i think and then get um sent over to the extruders where they get uh, in, a, uh, in a press where they extrude this uh this copper slug um and then end up filling it with um lead or whatever their projectile filament is and then uh throw it in a tumbler and eventually it becomes a bullet but <laughs> um but yeah I've, i was i uh, worked in the acid bath section of um annealing these um small slugs of copper for the copper jackets on nozzle bullets back in that was back in like 2000 maybe yeah good i'm old nozzlers come a long way since then Mm-hmm. yeah i imagine they have i used that 150 grain acubond for almost all of my hunts this year out of the 277 fury nice it was great it did great i was so happy with it mm-hmm. so happy with it yeah everything that i shot with it died quickly i just can't ask for more yeah and, and it's accurate bcs are great those those nozzle guys have been having that claim to them since before you were born. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So, and before I was born. So, uh, they've been doing uh, doing that bullet stuff for a long time. So that was uh, that was good to be a part of that little organization even for a short time. Yeah. Just to get a generational. Yeah, they're they're great. They're great stuff. Yeah, it'd be cool to have that uh, that kind of reputation. You know what I mean? For you know, you can start whatever company you are, whether it's uh, six six ranch or the podcast or you know. Um, whatever whatever product service or whatever you're delivering and you can get that kind of reputation 
you're doing something right. You know what I mean? Well, and there's such a thing as generational knowledge too. Like, you know, we're six generations deep on the six ranch right now. And, you know, there's been enough record keeping along the way that, you know, we can go back to the 1800s and be like, okay, what was going on at this time then? And is that similar to now? What are the differences? How's the situation changed? And how do we react to what we have now? How do we hold on to what we have? How do we move forward? How do we sustain it? And it, you need constant improvement. I think that's one of the things that people don't understand about sustainability. They think that it means preservation, just holding on. But you have to constantly seek improvement. But you can't take too big of a bite. It has to be incremental. Because if you outrun your headlights, you know, it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. So, no, it, it, is a, it is a neat thing. It is a neat thing. I, I love it when companies can hold on and when families can hold on and, and maintain interest and show respect to that, that genetic obligation to continue with the task. And it's not easy. It's not easy, but it's worth it. Yeah. And that's the one thing that I like about, um, you know, what we're doing here with uh, tier one is that we're not, we're not growing at some real weird exponential rate that we can't control. It's not like, you know, we're not putting a bunch of stuff out there just to put stuff out there, uh, yeah. you know, and uh, we only got a limited supply of stuff to deal with. And that's totally fine with all of us because none of us are depending on this for our livelihood, you know, and, um, you know, and eventually when that time does come, you know, and we eventually switch it over and, you know, we do this for a living instead, uh, you know, it's not going to change. So we're all comfortable being uncomfortable you know what i mean so we're we don't have to you know have these gigantic sales revenues we don't have to you know you know we just don't have to do it because i don't know people like me and you like we're just comfortable like doing whatever and like people are going to make their minds up on whatever they're going to do but yeah we're just out there to like provide consistent stuff and good real no kidding stuff that people can depend on you know and that's just exactly kind of what the nozzle guys have done forever. And so I have a feeling like as long as you just kind of keep on concentrating on developing and implementing those kinds of products and services or ideas or training or whatever, um, you know, like you're probably not going to screw it up. (laughs) So as long as you're not taking shortcuts and, you know, taking advantage of someone. So I think that's really the only thing is like making sure to keep that, um, you know, keep that transparency, like through what you're doing and share, share knowledge any given moment and yeah just be open to everyone that has an idea because uh, you definitely don't have all of them your own self and i'm like i said i mean i'm just in this lifelong learning process and stuff and still trying to figure out what i'm doing so so what advice do you have for somebody that thinks that you know they too want to be a barrel-chested sky god descending from the heavens to extinguish the wrathy fires of lightning or if they want to become a Black Hawk pilot in the Army or if they want to start their own firearms company or do any of the absolutely badass stuff that you've done in your life, what advice do you have for them? So none of that's easy. That's daunting to think about. Um, well, James, to be honest with you, it's going to be like a, you got to start with a good pair of boots <laughs> um, and not be afraid to use them. You know what I mean? So um, if you're going to invest one thing, uh, it's going to be in your feet. Because <laughs> honestly, man, you're going to need those fucking things. Uh, 
So that's pretty much where I'd start. Uh, and then invest in your fork because you need to feed yourself in a way that uh, is conducive to using your feet um, because you're going to abuse abuse them a lot. Um, and it's only once you abuse them enough to where you realize that um, there's a lot of things that aren't that hard anymore after you are, go through enough hard stuff. So, and then it's just kind of up to you on your mental capacity on like what you really feel like enduring and then what, why, and then why you want to do it. So like starting to tune out all the other things that don't matter, um, is a skill. Um, it doesn't cost anything. So, you know, a pair of boots, they don't cost very much, you know, but they're kind of expensive. You know, a good pair of boots is going to, I mean, I'm pretty sure a nice pair of whites is going to be quite a bit of money still. Um, I had zero skills whatsoever when I started firefighting. None. I was, had no high school. I had, like, no practical skills whatsoever. I could probably, like, hammer a nail in a board, maybe. Like, I think, even when I was in high school, I think they did a, a job, I did a job shadow, because I was kind of interested in um, firefighting or whatever. And the guy was like, well, you know, I, I asked him, that. I'm like, well, what, what kind of skills does it take to do this job? And he's like, well, can you chew bubble gum and walk at the same time? And I said, yes. And he said, you're good. I was like, okay, well, hey, you know, I can do this. So uh, as it turns out, it's a touch more difficult than that long term, but it is what you make of it and uh, where you want to go with it. But yeah, good boots, man. And then, um, yeah, being that, being that determined soul, like, you know, you got to look into yourself and see what it really means to you. Cause, um, once you start missing birthdays, holidays, pets die, like parents pass away, like, uh, people get diseases, um, you know, people start dying like it just there's a lot of other things like mentally and emotionally that are extremely difficult that like if you start paying attention and let yourself get bogged down and all that stuff then all of a sudden you're distracted and then now you have this uh this victim excuse of like why you couldn't do something so like whether it's starting a business or getting your degree or you know repelling out of helicopters or flying them or building a plane or building a truck or like you know achieving a certain amount of financial success like, if you're not tuning out literally all the other noise, like, so social media, uh, like, music, or, like, hobby interests, shooting guns, like, you know, going hiking in the mountains, skiing, whatever other kind of, if you, you know, your, your passion is doodling on a napkin or whatever, like, or you're a tattoo artist or you're, you know, um, uh, part-time Sherpa in, in uh, Nepal, I, you know, it, it just doesn't matter, man. Like, so, like, if, if you're not, like, kind of happy doing whatever it is that you're doing, you have to figure out a way to, like, Orient and focus your brain on only doing whatever it is that's absolutely going to drive you in that direction that's um, in uh, the direction of your dream, passion, goal, whatever it is. So, and that also applies to physical fitness where, uh, you know, it's kind of funny because like now I'm not really like a physical fitness, uh, you know, I I never was like a, uh, you know, a, a specimen, but like my, my head, I was always so stubborn that like, um, you know, the only, like, one of the, one of the people that taught me the most about that was uh, your cousin, Rowdy, you know? Yeah. So, uh, that dude just had no quit in him, ever. And he is still, to this day, like, like one of the most hard people ever I've ever met. And maybe, like, I, it's because I haven't met, like, David Goggins and, uh, like, Cam Haynes and those guys. But, like, that's the kind of mentality, like, that is uh, <laughs> ridiculous, you know? And you, um, it, it's an, um, you know, like, I... 
I don't necessarily, there's pros and cons to that mentality, you know, but um, it's just, you know, you kind of got to adopt that sort of passion, you know, to be able to do it. Um, and so, uh, and I've had a few, you know, like I said, you know, a few career changes, you know, I didn't, same thing when I worked on the crab boat, you know, like I didn't, I worked for free for them for a long time, like six weeks or something, maybe eight weeks. So, you know, coming off of a fire season, had a little bit of money in the bank. Hey, you know what? I don't need to, you know, I don't need to work for money right this second. I need to work to learn. Right. Um, so I can actually have a skill that doesn't suck, you know, because uh, chewing bubble gum and walking isn't really like a skill that pays well in the long term. So um, and it's not fun. You know, you don't get an adventure like you don't get to be on the ocean at night, like with nobody else around you and like no sleep for 72 hours like sorting crab out and like hallucinating in the rain and shit it's just like <laughs> that stuff is just wild and uh so um uh it's uh it's fun and like that was actually that 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 job was ridiculous um but anyway yeah so that's kind of the thing is like you need to put yourself in a situation that absolutely peg like whatever it is you think your tolerance is for like extremely painful or tiring or exhausting or whatever. And if the more times that you put yourself into that situation where that is, uh, you know what that is and what that feels like, whether it's, uh, you know, tw 12 mile rucks with certain amounts of weight on your back for a ranger training or ranger uh, school or whatever, or whatever, or, or you're, uh, you know, hiking a bag down a Canyon for several thousand vertical feet with 110 to 120 pounds on your back. Um, you know, the, the more amount of like, uh, your scale for pain and tolerance of that and dealing with, um, uh, challenging circumstances that, uh, are, uh, quite beyond standard, um, and putting yourself there, uh, voluntarily and then getting yourself out of it and uh, developing that self-reliance, uh, definitely kind of teaches you to trust yourself in um, all these challenging situations and so you know that's kind of one of those things too that you know I'm hoping to kind of like bring forward in the in the development of this in this company too and to teach other people is like that is that feeling of self-reliance and not worrying about anything anywhere you're at in the world you know whether it's you know and whether you you know depend on a weapon or not to do that um, you know it it doesn't matter, you know, like, cause you're still going to somehow figure it out. And even if you don't figure it out and you're dead, you're still dead and you can't do anything about it anyway. So you really, it's not a big deal. So I don't know. It's the truth, buddy. Mm -hmm. It's the truth. Well, man, I want to go shoot some guns. You want to go shoot some guns? Let's do it. I really appreciate you taking the time. I hope folks, um, go check out material and kinetics and, uh, yeah. Thanks James. Appreciate it. A good friend. A you too, sir. All right, catch you next time, folks. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. This episode was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Artwork for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatterlin and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to share it with a friend and subscribe. You can find photos and more content on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.